Let's bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord to pray for the blessing of the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have been distracted by a great many things. We've hoped in other things. We've given attention to many things this week, and so we pray now that you would arrest our attention with your word, that you would speak. We confess with your word that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. We confess that we are like the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Your word stands forever. So we pray that you would come now and feed us on your word, that you would nourish us, that you would give us understanding, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we not only hear but listen and know and understand. Help us to take your word to heart. May we act on it. So come and speak your word now. And give us ears to hear. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Willie Loman was a lifelong salesman who saw his own brother and neighbor achieving the American dream. While he and his own sons floundered and failed. At 63 years old, Willie was so disillusioned with his life and prospects that he borrowed money from his successful neighbor to pay off his life insurance policy, and he went and promptly committed suicide so that his son could use the money from the policy to start a business for himself. The tragedy of Willie Loman is not that he failed to achieve the American dream. The tragedy is that he thought success would bring him and his family fulfillment. And in his pursuit of success, he ruined his own enjoyment of his life and his family. You might or might not recognize that story as the plot of Arthur Miller's iconic play, Death of a Salesman. That play's success, though, is largely due to the fact that it's a modern variation on our own enduring quest for significance. And that's a quest that we resume this morning in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 26 in your Bibles, we'll see the author wrestling through his disillusionment with life and work. But unlike Willie Loman, he's not disillusioned here with his own failure. He's disillusioned with his own success. The whole question seems to be, what about after? After is the key question in verse 12, the key concern in verse 18. What happens after I succeed? with all my success. 
Now, I need to warn you, the first part of this sermon might feel a little bit like watching Death of a Salesman on stage, like a tragedy. The encouragement is going to come. Trust me, the encouragement is going to come. But if we want to get what God is saying to us here in this part of His Word, then we have to listen to Scripture first. And here, that means we have to enter into the author's problem with Him. We have to feel them. So my first task is to help us to understand why the author feels the way he feels so that we feel his need with him because only then can we seek and appreciate Jesus for how he meets us in that common need. Now you'll remember the author calls himself Kohelet in Hebrew which is translated into English preacher but it really means gatherer or assembler. He gathers observations and he assembles God's people to share with them his gathered observations. So as you're reading through Ecclesiastes, it might feel like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. That's because he is, in a sense, We noted a few weeks back that the author refers to himself not only as Kohelet, gatherer, but also as king of Israel, subject to God's law and wisdom. So there's one author in two roles. The author as Kohelet, gatherer, observer, is arguing with himself as king, ruler, under God's law and wisdom. So as Kohelet, as gatherer, he goes by what he sees in God's world. But as king, he goes by what he reads in God's word. He's trying to reconcile those two perspectives within himself in his own experience. Empirical on the one hand, biblical on the other hand. So he's not trying to make sense of the world without God. He's trying to make sense of the world with God. How does he look out at the world and humanity's experience of it and still hold on to the God who he has encountered in Scripture? How does he make sense of both, of both what he sees and what he has heard and read? And it's not easy for him. First of all, in verses 12 to 17, he's disillusioned with wisdom. He experiences disillusionment with wisdom in verses 12 to 17. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that There is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is also more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity, for of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life 
because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity and striving after the wind. So I turn to consider wisdom, he says, on the one hand, and madness and folly on the other hand, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. That last part, that question, is hard to translate. The concern of verses 12 to 23 is with the word after in verse 12. And specifically, who comes after me? And what are they going to do with all I did? occurs again in verse 18, the man who will come after me. So in context, it makes most sense if Kohelet is talking about his successor who is going to inherit his hard-earned estate. So then the question becomes not only is that guy going to manage his life any more wisely than I manage mine, but rather is my beneficiary going to manage my estate wisely? And even if he does... He's going to die just like me. The answer in verses 13 to 17 is delayed, but it comes together in verses 15 to 16. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool is also going to happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity, for of the wise is of the fool. There's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. The wise and the fool, the king and his heir, will all die, and they'll all be forgotten in the sands of time. That fate, death, is maybe the only what has already been done in verse 12. (laughs) Whoever's coming after me, whoever I leave all this to, they're going to die just like me, whether they're wise or foolish. And they're going to be forgotten just like me and everybody before us, so whether he and I are both wise or both fools, what's the difference in the end? Until then, during life in this world, Kohelet still hangs on to the truth that it is better to be wise than foolish, verses 13 to 14. As king of Israel then, as the king who is subject to God's word, his law and his wisdom, he knows, he trusts, Proverbs is still good. It's still worth reading a chapter of Proverbs every day. Wisdom is still better than foolishness. I can see that. Yes, ultimately, there was no permanent, lasting, eternal gain to all of his work that he had done in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. None of his achievements changed the world or how the world works. None of his acquisitions changed him for who he really is. Even so... Whatever wisdom there was in working like that, it was better than foolishness. At least he knew what he was doing. He even coins his own little proverb to wisdom in verse 14. The wise person has his own eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. I mean, you could have read that in Proverbs. He believes Proverbs so much that he's writing one right in the middle of his questioning of wisdom. So as king, he gets it. Wisdom is still good. But as Kohelet, as gatherer and observer of facts in the world and how the world works and how life works and how death is no respecter of persons, 
he discovers that wisdom comes with a huge asterisk beside it. And yet, verse 14, yep, wisdom is good, still love Proverbs, still reading a proverb a day. Proverb a day keeps the devil away. And yet, I perceived, as I looked out on the world, I I could still see it, that the same event happens to all of them. No matter how many times you read Proverbs, you're going to die. And then you're going to be forgotten. After you die. So racking up wisdom, valuable as it is, seems negated by death. No matter how wise you are, the strategies and tactics of wisdom cannot help you outmaneuver death. So he asked, then why was I so ridiculously wise? If I'm still destined to die just like a fool. I mean, stockpiling wisdom didn't help me cheat death. So why did I work so hard gathering so much of it? You see, he feels like wisdom itself played him for a fool. Man, I gathered all this wisdom and I still die? Well, then what good was it? I'm going to die just like the fool. Even with all my wisdom, I'm going to die just like the fool. And legacy is definitely negated by the sands of time in verse 16. In the end, the wise is forgotten just like the fool. See, that hard truth is dawning on him. His memorials to himself are not going to last. You can build all the parks and businesses you want, and you're going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to know the name on the plaque. Who's that? Who's this park named after? What did he do? Mm-hmm. Time for lunch. Nobody's going to remember. Any more than he remembered those that came before him. The Kohelet's lamenting his own legacy. Like, I, <laughs> I did all this, and, and now what? What? This is why in verse 17, he hated his life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity and the striving after the wind. Who's going to remember you? No matter how great you were, no matter how much you did and accomplished and achieved and acquired, no one's going to remember, not even if you're a king, much less if you're a pastor of a small church or a small business owner or an accountant or a sales guy or a homeschool mom. Who's going to remember anything you did? Who's going to remember who you were? And if nobody's going to remember, why does it matter? You spend all your life working, working, trying to make a difference, trying to leave your mark, leave leave a legacy. And for what? To die and be forgotten just like any run of the mill fool. And to be forgotten, just like those who didn't work even half as hard as you worked. That doesn't make sense. 
And that's how it is. Wise people die just like fools die. And that is not what you expect from life. I hated that, Kohelet says. I hated that about life. I hate that that's how life works. It's not fair. Man, when you think about it, it's not even reasonable. Life has soured on Kohelet, and Kohelet has soured on life because death negates what seems like the most basic distinction of all, whether you're going to live a wise life or whether you're going to live a foolish life. But notice... You only expect that from life. You only expect this kind of ridiculous absurdity. It doesn't matter. What's the difference? You only expect that if there's no righteous, eternal creator, God, in your purview. I mean, if you're a raw secularist or a humanist or a nihilist or an atheist, then meaninglessness, absurdity, senselessness is exactly what you expect and you just expect yourself to laugh it off. But if you are a theist, not just a Kohelet, gatherer of observations, but if you're a king of Israel, if you're subject to God's law and wisdom and you're trying to hold that while you look at an absurd world, if you still believe in a God who created all and sustains all and governs all, who invests the world with meaning, then death coming for both the wise and the foolish alike, that's not at all what you expect. So this observation about the end game of this age is only deeply disappointing to someone who still believes in a righteous, wise creator God of the Bible. Someone who's trying to square his own raw human observations of reality and life on the one hand with the God who presented, who is presented to him in Scripture on the other hand. How do I reconcile that with him? And it's almost enough to make a Christian go crazy. In fact, Kohelet did go crazy there for a minute. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. No matter how wisely I act, death is going to reduce all of my achievements to absurdity. What in the world did I do all that for? If I know I'm just going to end up six feet under, eaten by worms just like everybody else. Why was I so wise again? You see, there's a glitch in the system. There's a corrupt formula in life's spreadsheet. Kohelet typed all of his wisdom into life. But he's not getting the answers that he expected in return. Where's the error in the formula? 
Understandably, then, he returns to loathing his own life's work in verses 18 to 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, and yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation? Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You middle-aged men are feeling me right about now, aren't you? (laughs) This guy's in a midlife crisis. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. So now he doesn't just hate life in general. He hates his job. He hates his work. He hates the results of his work even. What he hates about his own life's work apparently is all the toil that he spent in verses 4 to 8 last week in estate planning and business development and planting orchards and forests and commodities trading. Why is he so worked up and beaten down now if he's been so successful? He says it in verse 18, seeing that I must leave it all to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he's going to be wise or a fool. There's that overriding concern again from verse 12, who's coming after me? That's just it. I have no idea. I mean, it matters deeply to Kohelet that he leaves his hard-earned legacy to a wise person. But that's the rub. He has to designate a beneficiary before he can tell for sure who it is who will actually act wisely and who will play the fool. He can't tell the future. Which one of my kids is going to turn out? I don't know. I build all these estates, these businesses, these investments. Who's gonna, what's going to become of them after I die? He doesn't have a good answer, and it is killing him for now. So he's not just saying, I've never seen a hearse towing a U-Haul. This isn't just about you can't take it with you when you go. He's saying that, look, even if I leave it behind as a legacy, it's a crapshoot. I may as well give it to Vegas. Setting up a trust fund or even a charity doesn't mean you're cheating death. I mean, Solomon himself left the United Kingdom to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam split it before you could say, Shibboleth. That's the absurdity of it all. To spend your whole life planning and saving and building and investing and working, 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 working. And for what? 
a legacy in this world that you cannot ultimately guarantee. What in the world? Kohelet still thinks saving for your kids is good. He says as much later in chapter 4 and 5, but legacy, that's precarious. Because wisdom has limits for finite people in a fallen world. So in verse 20, Kohelet, as observer of reality, says, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. You just see him slumping his shoulders. (laughs) Well, what now? I kind of wish I hadn't thought this deeply about life. But you see in that comment, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Despair. The Hebrew word for despair means despair. (laughs) I mean, this is a low point. This is why vanity is not just superficiality or brevity in Ecclesiastes. You don't despair over something that's superficial or more brief than you wish it were. I don't despair because the amusement park ride is over so quickly. I don't despair over that. I don't despair because some sitcom is shallow or only lasts 25 minutes. You despair when things that are really important to you end up seeming like they make no sense at all. You despair when life doesn't work for you the, thought, the way you thought it would or should. And oddly enough, the harder you work and the more successful you are, the more acute this legacy problem becomes. In verse 21, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, the successful guy, the wise guy, prosperous guy, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Kohelet feels like he has become a victim of his own success. I worked so hard and I was really successful and yet I have to leave all my success to someone who didn't work for it? And you know what trust fund kids are like. I got to leave it to him? I got to leave it to Bobby? He doesn't even have a job. (laughs) What's he going to do with it? He doesn't know hard work. He doesn't know what it took for me to do. He doesn't know all my blood, sweat, and tears that I put into all this. How's he going to value it for what it is? That seems senseless. That seems absurd. That seems unfair. So much so that he calls it a great evil. This, it really doesn't seem that life should work like this. It doesn't seem like I should come to the end of my life and feel like this about being so successful. And it looks like he's flashing back to verse 10. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil that I considered, all that my hands had done, and all the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. 
See, the great evil of it is that your beneficiary has no idea how hard you worked for it or the pleasure that you had after you worked for it and earned it or the absurdity that you discovered in the middle of enjoying it. The heir to the fortune cannot learn those things precisely because he did not work for it and so it might even be more senseless and meaningless and disillusioning to him because he didn't experience it as the reward of his toil. He experienced it as the reward of your toil. So now where is even the pleasure of it going to come from for him if you experienced it as the reward of your toil? That's all it was to you. But it can't even be that to him because he didn't work for it. So he despairs of his life's achievements and acquisitions, not because he can't take them to the grave with him, but because he cannot know what the future will make of them after he's gone when those achievements and acquisitions stay in this world with his beneficiary. So if the work wasn't really worth the pleasure when you lived it. And you can't guarantee the legacy when you leave it. What do you got to show for it? That's his question in verses 22 to 23. What does a man have from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's not a moment in the 24-hour cycle, not a moment in the business cycle, not a moment in the news cycle where his work doesn't contribute to the sense that life is senseless. Days full of sorrow, work is a source not just of confusion, but of anger, of frustration. As soon as you stop long enough to put it into perspective, the long run of this world, who am I leaving all this to? What am I doing this for? I'm no different now than I was before I had all this success. And who in the world am I going to leave all this to when I die? So he's not just asking, what have I done in the world? He knows what he's done in the world. He just explained it to us. He's he's despairing. He's asking, what in the world have I done? And what's going to become of what I did in the world when I die? This, this is the human condition. This is the existential question of humanity, of life. And the pattern of all Kohelet's reasoning, you'll notice from verses 12 to 23, is the pattern of our own reflections on life. Trace out the subjects and the verbs in verses 12 to 23. I turned, I saw, I perceived, and then I said in my heart, and again, I said in my heart, so... I hated life. I hated all my toil, 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. I saw, therefore I said, therefore I hated, therefore I despaired. I looked at life from my own perspective. I drew a conclusion. I told myself something about life from walking by sight. I felt terrible about life as a result of that conclusion, and I gave up. Now, what is Kohelet's counsel to us after all of that? What's he tell you to do with his experience? He gives us direction in verses 24 to 26, enjoy life for what it is. Just enjoy life for what it is. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Even as a Christian, you will not find ultimate meaning in your this-worldly vocational success. God alone can give you satisfaction in your work. Yet even that God-given satisfaction in work is not intended as supreme or primary for you. In the context of this non-ultimate world, there's nothing better to do with a frustrating experience of a frustrating life than to enjoy it for what it is and what it provides for you without trying to make it something that it's not. That's what makes this paragraph different from eat, drink, and live for tomorrow we die. Yes, tomorrow we do die. Kohelet admits it, all of us. And yes, that means that this life is the only time we have to enjoy the things of this life. But remember, who is the giver, the author, the sustainer of this life? God is. He is the only one who gives not only the good things to enjoy, but the ability to enjoy them for what they are without expecting them to give you something they were never intended to give you, which is meaning. Verse 26 seems key. To the one who pleases him, God has given not only wisdom and knowledge, which don't necessarily translate to happiness, but also joy, even in the midst of life's absurdities. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So he's anticipating the conclusion of the whole book when he says in chapter 12, we should fear God and keep his commandments. That's what he's saying here. Please God. Obey God. Love God. Seek God. You have to live your life Godward. If you want to make sense of this senseless life, you cannot do it simply by looking at this life. The Kohelet approach 
Mere observation, raw empiricism, just going based on what you can see in this life, has to be contextualized in submission to the mysterious, righteous providence and pleasure of God. You can only enjoy this world for what it is if you enjoy it from the God who gave it. Secular humanists are not the only ones who have trouble remembering that. You and I as Christians have trouble remembering that. The point of the whole thing here, the end of chapter 2, what Kohelet learns is that life is worth living. It's just not worth living this life in this world is worth living it's just not worth living for this life in this world is from God's hand wisdom and skill for living this life come from God's hand our work is from God's hand Hand. Our enjoyment of the rewards of our work is from God's hand. That's why this life in this world is worth living, because it is the gift of a good, righteous, generous, kind, faithful, creator, sustainer God. He gives to all humanity life and breath and everything. He determined when and where we would live He determined the lot lines, not only on our houses, but of our whole lot in life. Where is the yard of my existence? God drew those lines for you. That gift of life, of your life, friend, of your life, is a function both of God's holiness and His goodness. And if you ignore that, whether as a secularist or as a Christian, then sooner or later, life is going to sour on you and you're going to sour on life. God only made this world and this life to draw your attention to Himself as your Creator and Sustainer and King. All this life is, is an invitation for you to worship and enjoy and trust and repent towards the God who made it all and gave it all to you. So if you try to make more of this life than God made of it, then it will sorely disappoint you. But this is exactly what we were doing when we sinned in the Garden of Eden by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We tried to make our life in this life a God-like life. We tried to become our own gods in this life, which of necessity meant that we did not want God to be God of this life. We believe Satan's lie. Hey, he's only preventing you from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he knows when you eat of it, you're going to be just like him. And being just like him sounded really good to us. Being out from under him sounded very good to us. Being our own gods, that sounded good. 
our own gods in this life? And did life ever sour on us? God warned us that it would. That's what... That's when he subjected all creation to futility, but he did it again in the context of hope, which came in the promised seed of Eve who would crush the satanic serpent who tempted her. So even now in this fallen world, only in our creator God do we live and move and have our being. Only God is worth living for because only he gave us life. And even though he is the one who subjected the world to futility, which Kohelet laments, God is also the only one who gave us Christ to suffer and overcome that futility with us and for us. Only Christ is worth living for because only he gave his life for ours in his death on the cross as the substitute penalty for our sins. But as soon as you start living this life for this life, instead of for the God who gave it and the Christ who redeems it for us, it begins to curdle on you like bad milk. And your life starts to pour out clumpy and gross. And you don't want to drink your life because it soured on you. Because you made too much of it. And that is what God commands us to repent of. Living this life for this life, for self, when in fact we should be living this life for God in Christ. But that raises the question, what does it mean to live this life for God in Christ? Well, Kohelet's answer is that we live this life as those who please God. How then does one please a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, all-knowing, all-wise, invisible creator God? Well, you start by thinking of him according to the way that he revealed himself, both in creation and scripture. You recognize what he's shown you in his works of creation. You admit, contrary to your fallen impulse, that all the design and order you see in life was put there by a grand and good creator. Stop trying to explain away the order of the universe by random evolution. What if someone came to your office or your job site, your cubicle, And said of your project, wow, isn't it amazing how that spreadsheet coalesced from the digital ooze and evolved into a formulaic masterpiece? That is remarkable. Don't you feel so lucky? Or wow, it is amazing how your cars or buildings or electrical circuit boards just come together and work beautifully even though no one designed or assembled them. It's remarkable what's coming out of your factory. The wonders of evolution. What does someone talk like that about your job, about your responsibility, about your creativity, about your craftsmanship? You, you would have a hard time being offended. You would be perplexed. You would be nonplussed. <laughs> what? <laughs> But God deserves for you to recognize his craftsmanship in your body. 
Every time you use your opposable thumbs to grab something, you should think, design, 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 design. That's convenient. Thank you, God. Thank you. Instead of doing this all the time. And we are sub-creators only because He created us in His image and He is the original and ultimate creator. Then you please Him by listening to what He actually said to us in His Word, Scripture, the Bible about Himself and about us. Now, whether you're a parent or a boss, you should be able to understand this. If people don't listen to what you say, or if they are forever twisting your words or doubting your word, it's very hard to have a relationship with them. Yes, it is the same with God. You cannot please God if you're always putting words into his mouth that he didn't say or always twisting what he did say to mean something he didn't mean when he said it. Or if you're always assuming the worst about him or refusing to do what he says or refusing to believe that he is who he says he is. Friend, read Scripture Listen to God. Don't just hear Him. Listen to Him. If you're a parent, haven't you ever said that to your children? Listen. Don't just hear. Listen. You know the distinction. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Act on what God says. Take Him at His word and take Him up on His word. Take God seriously. Rely on His promises. Fear His threats. Stand in awe of His power. Take your accountability to Him seriously. That's how you know Him. That's how you please Him. And most of all, understand that the quality of your own obedience and even the quality of your own repentance from your own sins cannot please such a perfect God. You cannot repent enough. Only Christ's perfect Sacrifice can pay the penalty that you deserved to pay in hell for your sins. And only Christ's obedient, perfect life credited to your account by faith can meet God's standards. That is how you please a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God, by admitting you could never please Him on your own. You could never do a good enough job, but praise God, Christ has satisfied God's wrath over your sins for you in his death and has satisfied his righteous demands that you could never meet in the way he lived. That pleases God. Faith in that message, taking God seriously when he tells that to you, that pleases him. When Jesus died for us, he died after living a perfectly wise life while enduring the senselessness of this world. He said of himself, something greater than Solomon is here, something greater than the greatest wise man. And yet, in life, Jesus had to entrust the money bag to a fool like Judas. Talk about Ecclesiastes. Jesus suffered the kind of death that Kohelet lamented, but worse. Kohelet had been so very wise, yet shared death with every fool. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden literally all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yet he died suffering the penalty 
for the foolishness of every single sinful fool who will ever turn and trust in him. Kohelet lamented of his own case how the wise dies just like the fool. Talking about himself as the wise one. Yet it was all the more true of Jesus how the wise dies just like the fool. And yet in the place of the fool, suffering the consequence of the fool's foolishness for you and for me. Yet Jesus is also the wise and righteous heir of all God's promises whose wisdom always makes his father proud. God said of him at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Paul said in Galatians 3.16, now the promises of the inheritance from the Old Testament were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus is the worthy, wise heir of all of his father's promises. Kohelet could not be sure whether his estate would pass into worthy hands, but God was sure and remains sure about Jesus. Jesus is the wise master over all that God's wisdom ever designed. He is the son who does not disappoint. And from God's great generosity in Christ, Jesus shares his internal inheritance with us, the foolish ones who deserve nothing but hell. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you deserve to be an heir of God's estate? No. No more than Rehoboam deserved it from Solomon. No more than Kohelet's son deserved it from him. We become sons of God by being united to the ultimate son of God, Christ Jesus, through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. And Peter confirms the certainty of our inheritance with Jesus in 1 Peter 1. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you, Christian. The inheritance you leave behind in this world is uncertain, risky, shaky at best. You have no idea how that's going to turn out, but the inheritance waiting for those who trust in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept out of this world in heaven for you as certain as it gets. Now you tell me, which one do you want to live for? It's no wonder then that Jesus himself commands us in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And come to think of it, isn't that really the issue that Kohelet is struggling with all the way throughout Ecclesiastes? Where is his heart 
That's his real trouble. Where is he going to put his heart? Because he's got so much treasure stored up here on earth. Yet even if he leaves it behind as a legacy, he's still storing it up on earth, not in heaven. Again, don't get the wrong idea. It's not wrong to leave a trust fund for your kids, but your legacy cannot be the trust fund you leave for your kids. Your legacy, if there even is such a thing in our forgetful world, has to be how you live your life before the face of God. How you trusted Him, how you loved Him, how you pleased Him, how you loved His Word, His ways, His Christ, His church. You can only save your life by losing it for eternal purposes, not temporal ones. Mark 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Kohelet had been trying to save his own life. Build the estates and houses, plant the gardens and orchards, dig out the irrigation pools, develop the business plans, hedge your bets with commodities, and then gather the finest servants and singers money can buy. And if it all seems empty after a while, then at least you can leave it all behind to... Oh, wait. That gets complicated too, doesn't it? If you try to live this life for this life, you're going to lose it, even if you try to leave it behind. But if you give away your life in this world for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels, you save it to eternal life And nobody can take that from you, not even a fool. So you're right, friend. The time and energy you spend serving, loving, speaking the gospel, discipling, praying, loving, teaching, leading in the church, that's time and energy you're never going to get back in this life. Guess when you're going to get it back? In the life to come. And he's going to give it back to you in spades, eternally more than you deserved from what you gave up. Take him up on his promise. I dare you. I want to make a quick public application that's going to seem perilously close, like preaching politics. Life is not fair. And no public policy can ever make it so. Even if you don't have to pay a dime in a state tax, Your estate is going to someone who didn't work for it. Not fair. And if the government taxes the rich to give it to someone who they think deserves it more, it's still going to someone who didn't work for what you earned. Not fair. Government can and should make sure that the law is applied without bias to rich or poor, great or small. Government can also be as wise as Solomon at his best, adjusting policy to results and reality. But we cannot expect government to take the inherent unfairness out of life. No matter who has a supermajority in Congress, Ecclesiastes will remain true. You also begin to notice how often Kohelet says the word I. I turned, I considered, I saw, I said, I hated. I gave my heart to despair over all my labors. His perspective is dominated by self. His experience and sentiments 
or sensual. His experience, his feelings from his experience and observations. Now again, he hasn't forgotten God. But it sure seems like everything has become about him and his work and how he feels about his work and everything that he has done from his work. He's looking around, looking within, yet he finds only emptiness. Friends, let's learn from that. Here's, here's how one theologian put it. He says, recognizing my life is subject to vanity, futility, meaninglessness, absurdity, means that in the final analysis, I cannot place myself in the center. If this whole world is vanity, so am I. So what am I doing trying to be the center of it? That's vain too. I can't be the center of the world, not the center of my circle of relationships. Mm. Not in the center of history, action, or culture. I must struggle against the nagging temptation to substitute my interests or my person for the center of revelation, the Bible. The person of Jesus Christ is the center of revelation, not you. If I fail to realize that I am vanity, the ideas that preoccupy me or interest me become the basis of my interpretation of Scripture. Thus, the Bible becomes a sort of mine in which I hunt for my answers and my arguments. Remember, when you do this, that you and your ideas are vanity. What are you looking in the Bible for, friend? What are you reading this for? To figure out how you can be in the center? Or how it's better for Jesus to be at the center. If I put my work, my feelings at the center, if I make myself, my experience, my feelings, my assumptions, the measure of all things, including the Bible, then I will remain confused because the truth is I am not the center of God's universe. God in Christ is the center of God's universe. God does not rent space in my world. He graciously gives me space in his world So whether I am reading reality or reading scripture, the interpretive key and center is not me. It's Christ. And this is why the Puritan pastor Charles Bridges said, when self is thus the center of happiness, the great end in life, what a treasure of vanity do we lay in store for ourselves. (laughs) You're saving up a currency that doesn't spend in the life to come. Would it not have been better for the author, instead of being weary of his life, rather to have been weary of his sin in seeking ultimate happiness in earthly things? Ah, yes. What about us, friends? What about you? Surely we can see ourselves in Kohelet's quest for a self-centered satisfaction in this life, my work, my achievements, my acquisitions from my achievements, my pleasure, my treasure. Here is elsewhere, Scripture functions as a mirror to show us ourselves. You're looking at yourself when you're looking at Kohelet. You're doing this. You and I are him. We struggle to seek our ultimate happiness and meaning in this life, and Scripture keeps on reminding us that while this life is worth living... It is not worth living for. And that raises a final question. Which life are you living for? 
this life or the life to come. Jesus has secured an eternal inheritance better than trust funds and estates. It's imperishable, it's unfading, it's undefiled, it's kept in heaven for all who trust in Jesus. And nothing in this world could be more certain or more satisfying than that. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that we daily are battling and succumbing to the same temptation over and over. Lord, give us grace not to make more of this life than you have made of it, but to live for you and for your purposes as our creator and redeemer, to live for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we treat him not only as our prophet and our priest, but as our king. For his sake we pray. Amen.